Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. We are now several episodes into diving into Luke's orderly and reliable account of the story of Jesus. We've just witnessed the birth of John, and now finally we get to see Jesus make his grand entrance into the world. Now with that said, let's start with Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Quote, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Carinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town, end quote. So we start off with the most powerful man in the world, the guy who is the leader of the world's superpower at the time. He sends out a decree that everyone has to be registered. This is like an empire-wide census. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Luke does something truly unique to tell us right off the bat that Caesar Augustus is not the star of the show. He's not going to be the main character. Actually, he is going to be like a pawn moved by the one true God. And when I say that this is truly unique, I'm saying unique to the point that to our knowledge, no one's done what Luke does here. He's the first to ever do it. This isn't really evident in our English translation, so this sounds super vague, but this would have jumped off the pages from every Greek reader that was looking at this. Theophilus, who this was originally written to, would have noticed this right off the bat. Let me explain. Now, I don't know what you know about the Roman Empire or about the Caesars, but Julius Caesar was thought by the Romans to be divine, and his adopted son, Caesar Augustus, was also thought to be divine. Divinity and the name Caesar Augustus were so tightly intertwined, it would have been the first thought most of Luke's initial readers would have. The spotlight would have been split. Yet we know the majesty of Jesus should never have a split spotlight. So let me tell you what I mean. Romans typically wrote in Latin. And Luke is writing here in Greek. So Luke uses the differences in language to almost demote Augustus in the narrative of Jesus. Hang with me here. The normal Greek word for Luke to use to describe Augustus' title is sabatos. Luke knew the word. He uses it in the book of Acts. So we know that he knows. But he doesn't use it here. I learned this little fun fact in my expositor's commentary on Luke and Acts. I will cite that commentary in the description for this episode. Instead of the normal Greek word, sabatos, that would conjure thoughts of this believed divine nature of Augustus, Luke transliterates the name from Latin to Greek. Let me explain what transliterate means, and I promise it is not nearly as complicated or technical as it may sound. It simply means to write out a word in one language using another language's letters. For example, have you ever seen the Greek word for love, agape, written out as A-G-A-P-E? That's taking a Greek word and spelling it out with English letters to make it easier on English readers like you and me. That's transliteration. That's all it is. So in this passage, Luke is using a Latin word and he is spelling it out with Greek letters so that he doesn't have to say sabatos. Here's the big point. 
Scholars believe Luke is doing this to take away any thoughts associated with Augustus' belief to be divine nature, and any other divine connotation with the word sabatos, to make sure his readers understand, even in their culture, that who they think is the most powerful man in the world, he's just a supporting character. He's an extra in the story of the real God, Jesus Christ, coming to us. Luke rightfully wants the full spotlight to be on Jesus. He doesn't want it split with anyone. Then let's move on to the other guy that's named, Quirinius. Now, he's named in verse 2, and I really don't think he's quite as important to this narrative. And probably Luke just says his name so that Theophilus can have a timestamp when he's reading this. So this decree goes out, and everyone has to go to their own town to be recorded. And that includes a very particular family that is key to this story, Joseph and Mary. We will pick back up in verse 4 and following. Quote, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. End quote. If you're looking at this from the lens of heaven, this decree by Caesar Augustus was so that Mary and Joseph would go to the right place at the right time to fulfill the words of the prophet. Listen to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. End quote. Last week, we talked a bit about how the Old Testament has been leading to the birth of Christ, so I am not going to double dip in today's episode, other than I just want to remind you that God has used so many people in the Old Testament to speak words of prophecy that all find their fulfillment in Jesus. When Micah says that there is going to be a ruler whose going forth is from old, from ancient days, this is supposed to be a major clue for us that this is no ordinary ruler. Really, we can connect this to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And in those verses, Daniel gives this prophecy, and he calls Jesus ancient of days. Jesus fulfilling all of these prophecies is an incredible declaration that He is who He said He is. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. At the point of Joseph taking Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, he had already made up his mind that he was going to marry Mary. Matthew chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 tell us that an angel appearing to Joseph in a dream helped move that process along a little bit. But before that dream, you've really got to think of the human side of the story for Joseph. An unexplained pregnancy from the woman he was supposed to spend his life with. And she says the child came from God. Now we're all biased, right? Because we have heard this story a million times. But can you think of how hard it would be for Joseph to hear this? To believe it? Joseph deserves a lot of credit for believing the angel in his dream and for submitting to the will of God in his life. He likely had to hear gossip and rumors about his family for all of his days. We have every reason to believe that Joseph was just a really good guy who was full of faith, just like his betrothed, Mary. Now, since I've brought up the word betrothed, Luke does give us that detail in these verses, that during this time, Joseph and Mary had not yet been married, nor consummated their marriage. They were still betrothed. So they're in the engagement phase of their relationship. That's Luke highlighting that there is no chance that Jesus is Joseph's biological son. The details matter here. Let's pick back up verse 6. Quote, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. End quote. I know in most readings of this narrative, it is presented like Mary and Joseph just barely arrive in Bethlehem, like this buzzer beater half court shot before Jesus was born. But that's not really how the text flows. We're not told how long they stayed in Bethlehem, but verse 6, it almost sounds like they had stayed there a while, like they had lingered in Bethlehem. What does seem to be true is that this world registration business has caused Bethlehem to swell in size far beyond its normal population. And in doing so, there was no room for them in the inn. I feel like we often paint the innkeeper as some like terrible, no good, bad guy. Like, how could he put this young woman who's about to give birth in this dirty old stable? But honestly, he was probably just doing the best he could with what he had. I doubt that he had ever been bursting at the seams with customers before this registration. He was problem-solving on the fly. Plus, there's something moving behind the scenes. Or I should say there's someone moving behind the scenes. God was working through this to show us a theme of the Messiah that's going to radiate throughout Scripture. So maybe we can give this guy a little bit of a break. What we are seeing here is what we call the incarnation. That is God coming to us in human form. He deserved the biggest party and parade you've ever seen. Caesar Augustus should have been there kneeling down before this baby that should have been in a diamond crib with the most comfy mattress you've ever seen. Look, Jesus deserved more than we could ever list out or describe, but he was not coming here in human form to get what he deserved. He came as a humble servant, and his entrance matched that of one who has come to serve. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 7. Quote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. End quote. Paul is telling us to look to Jesus as our example. Jesus, though having the form of God in his humility, he decides to take the form of a servant so that he could save us. Look, our culture is way too focused on getting what we deserve because we have this idea that we deserve this grand thing, deserve the best of everything. The truth of the matter, if we're really going to be real with this, is that we deserve the wrath of God. We have rebelled and we have continued to rebel against a holy and righteous God. The Bible is very clear about this stuff. It says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we have earned, what we deserve is death. It is the wrath of God. But that's not the case for Jesus, the sinless one. The sinless Savior chose the manger over the palace. He chose the stable over the parade because he came to serve, because he came to save. Our world would be so much better off if we, as Paul wrote, did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than ourselves. To have this mind among us, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine? Let's put on our imagination cap here for a second. If the church, the people of God who are called by the name of Jesus Christ, if we decided that we were going to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but that we were going to, in humility, count others as more significant than ourselves. Can you imagine if we said, hey, we're going to have this mind among ourselves? 
else because this is like Jesus and I want to be like Jesus. So I'm going to seek to serve instead of be served. So if you're a fellow believer, let me ask you this. This week, today, how can you follow Jesus and seek to serve instead of seeking to be served? How can you follow his model of humility? For Jesus modeled humility quite perfectly for his people. The king of the universe being born not surrounded by servants or nobles or kings, but rather livestock. Truly a humble beginning. Verse 8, quote, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. End quote. Shepherds are an interesting development in the story of Jesus. They were not highly regarded people in this Jewish world at all. I know in our culture, we can kind of romanticize the idea of shepherding a little bit, but that would not have been the case for this first century audience. See, people thought you absolutely, under no circumstances, could trust a shepherd. You sure could smell them, but you couldn't trust them. And as far as education goes, they're definitely the low men on the totem pole. They were outcast in society. Now, remember, here's a side note, how in the introduction to Luke, we talked about Luke's interest in the outcast in the Jewish world. The shepherds are another great example of this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. Whether you are a king or a shepherd or anything in between, the gospel is for you. So, back to these shepherds. Another night where these guys were just doing their job. Nothing new, same old, same old, until... Verse 9, quote, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. End quote. If you're keeping score at home, we went from nothing new to needing a change of clothes really, really fast. When it says they were filled with great fear, I feel like that is pretty self-explanatory. But it's not just the angel that was causing fear. It says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. The father here is declaring the arrival of a son to those on the outer rim of society. And he was doing so in a way that made his presence undeniable. Now let's reread verses 10 and 11. Quote, and the angel said, to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. End quote. So the angel says, good news of great joy. Good news, or evangelion in the Greek, is also translated as gospel elsewhere in the New Testament. Side note, you can probably see how we get the word evangelism or evangelist from evangelion. The angel is declaring that they are bringing the gospel to the shepherds, a gospel that promotes great joy because it promotes hope. It says that God is coming to his people, that they're not forgotten or forsaken. The angel declares the gospel is for all people, for the Savior has arrived. God could not be more clear. The good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone. 
And this knowledge that the gospel is for everyone makes it especially special in the book of Luke when we see this theme where Luke is showing us all of these people who don't quite fit the norm, who are on the outside of society, the outside of culture, those who have been looked down upon or disregarded. Luke shows us, he highlights for us that the gospel is for those people too, that God has not forgotten them, that God loves them, that God treasures them and has made a way for them to be saved. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you have never really found a place where you fit in, that you have never really felt like you have measured up, or when you compare yourself, you're always a loser in those comparisons, you should always, always remember that this gospel is for all people. This love of God that is put on display, this joy that is offered, this invitation into a family that is offered, is offered to the kings, it is offered to the shepherds, it is offered to the ones who are most included, and it is offered to the ones who have never been included. The good news of Jesus Christ is truly for everyone. Verse 15 and following, quote, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. End quote. It almost sounds as though this massive army of angels just launched higher and higher into the sky until they're out of view. Perhaps their exit was as eye-popping as their entrance. I love that the shepherds had this little chat with one another. Hmm, maybe we should go check this out. They've been invited into the story of Jesus and are accepting the invitation. So they go. And just as the angel said their sign was to find a baby lying in a manger, verse 16 says that they found the baby lying in a manger. The word from God is again found to be true and correct and trustworthy. As we'll see next week, it was Jewish custom to circumcise the male babies on the eighth day. And it is on the eighth day when the child would be named. That's why in verse 16 it says baby instead of Jesus. Verse 17, quote, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told, end quote. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph sitting there and having these unusual characters just kind of stumble in, speaking frantically about this army of angels and all that they said? Sure, Mary and Joseph had already had angels appear to them, but this must have been quite the scene. Verse 18 tells us, And all who heard it wondered, so I can't help but wonder if other families or persons were also lodging in the same stable. Either way, in the midst of their wonder, Mary is treasuring up everything she's hearing in her heart. She's keeping notes. She is marinating on what God is doing through her, through her family, what he's going to do through this baby boy. The world of the shepherds was radically changed that night. As I mentioned before, shepherds were not trusted members of society. They were looked down upon, not just for their economic status, but also for their supposed lack of character, their lack of integrity. Yet God reached them with messengers of the gospel. And as a result, they were saved. And listen, I don't think it is a stretch or a leap at all to say that they are saved. Look at their reaction. It says they returned glorifying and praising God. They are excited and thrilled over what God is doing. Honestly, it seems as though the shepherds are the first human evangelist after the birth of the Savior. 
When I think of their their exit here, I think of Romans 1.16 where Paul writes, quote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, end quote. The gospel is not just a friendly message or a inspirational story. It contains the power of God to bring the spiritually dead to life. The good news of Jesus Christ is really good news. There is bad news that comes first. As we said before, the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. And in the same book we find that, the book of Romans, we also see that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Put that together and you will see that everyone has earned death. I know that's not fun to talk about. I know that's not encouraging to bring up, but it is in the scriptures. And if we say that all of the Bible is God-breathed, that all of it comes from God, all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation, all comes from God as its origin, then when we see this in Romans, and we see that the wages of sin is death, and when we see that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, when we see that this means that every single person has sinned, and because of that sin, deserves death, we have to take it seriously. But the good news, this gospel, this evangelion of Jesus Christ, is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we understand that son that was born in the passage we read today would grow up to be a full adult man, that he would perfectly live every step of the way. He would never sin with the actions of his hands. He would never sin with the words of his mouth. He would never sin with the thoughts of his head or the motivations of his heart. He would live perfectly. He would live righteously every day of his life. And since he never sinned, he never earned death, his righteous living actually earned eternal life. And though he earned eternal life, he chose death on a cross so that he could pay for the sins that we had committed. And if he paid for those sins, that means he could give us eternal life, the same eternal life that he had earned. Once he was laid in the grave, And he arose from the dead on the third day victorious. That's why whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is good news because it tells us that though we have sinned and deserve death, that that doesn't have to be the end of our story. The story of Jesus says that there's another way. The story of Jesus tells us that God came to us to make a way so that we would not have to experience death. In fact, that he would experience it for us so that we may have life. This is the story of Jesus. This is the good news that he brings. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because He gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.